It's, uh, it's been a good morning already. I've gotten to meet some new people in Discovering Greenville Oaks who are joining us for that and getting to know more about our church family this morning to come in and to hear God's praises shared uh, this morning here has been a, a blessing. I'm excited to share a message again about uh, the cross, and that's what I want to focus on this morning is this symbol of the cross and the transformation the symbol has gone through the years. I mean, you want to think about it, going back to the first century, what would the cross have brought to mind? for people in that Roman Empire. I mean, the cross was a symbol of, of death. The cross was a symbol of torture. It was a difficult thing for people to think about. In fact, the cross served as a deterrent in the first century uh, for all uh, these criminals and all those. I mean, if you were a parent in the first century and you wanted to scare your kids into doing the right thing, you'd take them by that public scene of the cross because it was a different time and era. Let's think about it. I mean, the Colosseum was entertainment in those days. So violence was just more in front of people than it is even today. But this deterrent uh, served its purpose for many people, but here we find the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the innocent one, winds up on a cross of all things. And even Scripture in the Old Testament talks about this, that those who die on a tree are cursed. And so it would have been odd to think about the Messiah going to death on our behalf and dying uh, as a result uh, of this great, incredible death. So there's so much that, that the cross stirs up in people. But think about this symbol that we have on stage, the cross, when it comes to the 21st century. Because it conjures up a very different image, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are wearing crosses. I've got a cross on and I wear it each day. It's a reminder to me of what Jesus has done on my behalf, that I no longer have to uh, go on the cross because he was willing to go on the cross for me, and I'm grateful for that. But think about in our culture. I mean, uh, in fact, in 2005, uh, some of you know the the rapper Eminem. Eminem went off stage, and many wondered why he completely disappeared from uh, touring and from going through what he, you know, the public life that every celebrity goes through. Many people thought it was probably drug rehab, but it was not until five years later, 2010, that Eminem took the stage again. And when he took the stage in his hometown of Detroit, Michigan, he had a new thing that was on him. It was a cross. And it stirred up all this conversation about why, why would Eminem, before all of this, what must have happened in these five years that would have changed his life? Now, what's interesting is the lyrics stayed the same, which isn't very cross-shaped, right? But there's this symbol that means something in our culture that makes us ask some of these questions about what does that mean and why do we wear this? And for us as Christians, I mean, I wear one. I, it means something significant to me. But if you think about our culture, it's amazing how many celebrities and how many people wear this symbol, and for some, probably doesn't mean much of anything other than a fashion accessory. So how did this symbol that meant death at one point come to summon our culture to just be this symbol that you kind of throw on if you need something to touch up what you've already put on in terms of clothes to make sure you're looking as you should? See, symbols change over the time, but this symbol in particular has changed more than most other symbols. In fact, for those of you who are entrepreneurs out there, I want to, I want to, I got a challenge for you, okay? You got 2,000 years to pull off this challenge for the prize I got in mind, which is always a good thing to throw out because I won't be here to pay up on that prize, right? But stick with me. You got 2,000 years. I want you to think about how you would market the electric chair so that it would be worn by a million people. Think about that. That's what we're talking about when it comes to the cross. And when we wear this symbol, we know why as Christians it's, a different frame that we have, but this would have been so odd for those in the first century to have thought, you're telling me 
in the 20th and 21st centuries, people are going to be wearing this around? Which tells me that something significant happened that's changed this symbol, that changed all of history, right? So 2,000 years, the difference. But the problem with that is we all wear the symbol, and sometimes familiarity can lead to unfamiliarity. Sometimes it can be such a normal symbol that we see all around on churches and and on people's t-shirts, and that they wear around, that almost we lose the significance of what that symbol was. So this morning, I want to go back, and I want us to take a look at how this symbol came, and how important it is, and for us to realize that when we see it around today, it ought to stir in us feelings that may be different than just the familiar picture we have of the cross. Because even though Jesus died as a once-for-all sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, where we don't have to sacrifice anyone again, or any animals, uh, Jesus never retired the cross. It's still in circulation. This is the, the Gospel of Luke. I'd love for you to open with me. If you put a bookmark there, we'll spend most of our time there this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 is where I want to begin reading. And I want you to hear how Jesus talks about the cross, not just as a one-time thing that he went to die on, but something that's still a call for us as well. Then he said to them all, Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? We'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's pray as we open our time in the message. God, I thank you this morning for this symbol of the cross and what it means for us. I thank you. Uh, for the life that you give us through your death. I thank you how this cross symbolizes in so many ways the new life that you offer to each and every one of us. But God, you've not retired this symbol. This is something you called us to pick up every single day of our lives so that it might make a difference in ours. So God, would you stir in us this symbol again so that we might know exactly what it's about and so the tension of the life we live and this cross would be played out more this week in our lives. We love you. We thank you so much for the grace that you've given to us in your sacrifice. And we want to live our lives in tune with your future. So we pray that this morning. I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching this morning as well, God, so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, the American culture is obsessed with winning, right? Everything about us says we want to win and we want to win big. And it's amazing how this message draws us in and how this message sometimes is, is what we want to have our lives be about. And Collin, Collin County is a culture obsessed with winning as well, isn't it? Don't you feel this tension as families? Don't you feel this tension as you live in this county of needing to try to keep up and make sure that your winners are just as much as everyone else? Every year in Collin County, we make a list, a top list in several different areas. Uh, healthiest counties, right? Actually, Collin County is near the top of that list. Wealthiest counties in the state of Texas, it's way up there. Um, best places to live, best schools. Allen is the place to be when it comes to these kinds of lists. And each city in Collin County, we come from different places ourselves around Collin County, and some even outside of this county. Each city has its own competition, doesn't it? Because within those lists of best cities, we tend to rank up there in some different categories. We want to compete with Plano, or, or Plano wants to compete with Allen, or McKinney, or, or so forth, Frisco, and so forth. All these cities are in competition with one another, even within this high list of winning cities. And I think Allen's one of those cities that is obsessed with winning. When we moved to Allen, one of the first things we noticed are these blue signs when you travel through the city 
that show lists of accomplishments throughout the years. You notice these signs I'm talking about on McDermott or Bethany? Maybe you've been here so long you don't recognize them anymore. But when we moved here, we noticed these. One of them talks about state wrestling championships. And I know I'll get called off if, if Keith's still in the room if I get this wrong. I think it's 2009 through 2016, Allen's won every single one of those state championships. All right, it was the 08, 09 year, Keith. So I want to give all the credit that's due there. And you see that sign when you pass through Allen. Uh, it's the home of uh, Olympic champion Carly Patterson. I, that's something I didn't know. I saw on this sign as I was passing uh, by when we first moved here. And then, of course, football, right? I mean, 2008 and then 2012, 2013, 2014. I mean, not many stadiums can claim and show national champions 2014. Now, what's interesting is when I begin to list these accomplishments and see this, some of you are beaming with pride. I see smiles on your faces because you remember those days. You remember when Allen didn't win and you were there when your kids were on those teams, and you, there's a pride about that. And others of you are sick of hearing about it, right? Be honest. You live in Lucas or you live in Plano, and you're, you've got your own teams and your own sports that do well. But with, this is a bigger church than just Allen. Why do we have to keep talking about that? And isn't it funny what this stirs inside of us, even this conversation about winning? Because some of us, it builds this sense of pride. And others of us, it's like, some of you are already typing out an email. Colin, would you quit talking about that? I'm not from Allen, right? It's Colin at greenvilleoaks.org, by the way, if you're typing out that email. But it's interesting how this culture of winning drives our lives in so many ways. And, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to win at things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to build winning teams. There's nothing wrong with wanting to win. There's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to go to the top-ranked schools that are in Callan County. There's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to be invited to that select softball or basketball or, or to be put first chair or whatever it might be when it comes to extracurriculars with your kids. There's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to attend a well-respected university. And there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting your kids to get a scholarship to a well-respected university. Can I get an amen? Like, we want these things for our kids, and there's nothing wrong with that. Those are actually good impulses. But there's a little bit of attention in the room when we talk about this whole winning thing because some of us struggle because we're not exactly lining up with those neighbors around us that seem to get what they want. Our kids aren't exactly measuring up. There's, there's something wrong with those goals when they become the ultimate driving force in our lives. In fact, the Bible calls that idolatry. And here's what's interesting about idolatry. We often think about idols in the Old Testament as bad things we would worship, as these stone things that can't do anything. But in 21st century culture, idolatry isn't usually when we worship bad things. It's usually when we worship good things. Who wants to worship bad things? It's the good things in our lives. And, and, and it's not bad in themselves, these idols. What's bad is when these secondary and tertiary things in our lives take primary importance. And they displace God as the primary thing in our lives. So as, as you think about this in your life, I, here's a test for you when it comes to idolatry. Think uh, the last two or three times when you've gotten angry, what it was about. What was the thing that caused that? And what I would guess is that that anger in some ways will identify for you where your idolatry lies. How many of you recently, you were at the sporting fields, right? Seven-year-old game? I, I didn't see anybody, so I'm not calling anyone out for okay? But have you ever been at one of those games? and and a, a, a call's blown and, and all of a sudden your grandkid loses or your kid loses and you find yourself like worked up about this, really, this isn't going to affect their future. This isn't going to affect anything. All it's going to affect is they learn how to lose and learn the lessons of that, right? <laughs> but we get worked up and sometimes our anger shows. How many of you, it's, it's your kids getting bullied at school and man, mama bear is going to get angry in those moments, right? 
There's nothing wrong with wanting to step up and defend your kids, but sometimes our idols become known when that anger begins to arise inside of us. You know what I'm talking about? So there's nothing wrong with desiring these things. It's when it, they get, that God gets displaced and those things become primary things that that becomes a problem. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to win, but we're in a whole lot of trouble when our anger begins to arise because we've given things a place of primary importance where it shouldn't be. Which brings me back to the story and the symbol of the cross and Jesus and the tension of living in a city and a county where winning is so important. You see, Jesus dealt with competitive spirits. It's not like the competitive gene just emerged in the 20th century. Jesus is living in Palestine at a time where his people aren't winning. These are people that are living under foreign rule. The Romans are winning, and they'd like to take it back. This is a time where Jesus is dealing with all kinds of issues of competitiveness. He's heard stories from his family, for instance, about ancestors who lived through the exile who lived through this time where they lost. They originally had this land, and it got taken away from them. Those stories are alive in Jesus' family. And no oppressed people group is happy and content to remain there. You want to move out of that if you feel this tension. Now, the tension for us is we read Scripture where all of these books are written by people who are oppressed people with the boot of the neck of an empire on their neck. It's hard to read it as people who happen to have our boot on other people's neck, right? I mean, this is... We're in a different place than most people who read Scripture. We're the superpower of the day. So how we live in the midst of that is a whole other set of questions. But we still desire to win, don't we? We still desire to live in these ways. And they were looking, Israel was, for a leader who would make Israel great again. And in Luke 9, we see that the disciples and Jesus have very different visions of the future. In fact, if you have Luke 9 still open, I'd like to continue reading. In, in chapter 9, verse 43, the second half of 43, I want you to pay attention to the struggle of the desire to win and get back in power and the cross that Jesus is pointing them toward. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Isn't that interesting, this juxtaposition, right? This is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Mark, it happens in chapters 8 through 10. And in Mark, there's three encounters between Jesus and the disciples where he says clearly to them, I'm going to the cross. This is where this is headed. And every single one of those encounters, if you read the story that follows, the disciples blow it. They think it's still about winning. So they argue over who's the greatest in this story. In Mark chapter 10, they're arguing. James and John come to him and say, uh, can we sit at your right and your left in your glory? And he's like, we're going to the cross. Do you really want to be on my right and my left? So there's this tension that's playing, being played out in the Gospels between the cross that Jesus is headed towards and these disciples that are on this path of winning. They think they're on the winning team, and Jesus is trying to open their eyes to it. Jesus sees a cross. His disciples see a Messiah who's going to make Israel what it used to be. And it happens again just a few verses later, three in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now pay attention to this language, set out for Jerusalem. The, the Greek's even more, uh, it, it has more emphasis than what the, 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 the English does. It actually says Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. So right now he's in Galilee and he's heading south on his journey to the cross. 
And on his way, he's going to pass through Samaritan country, and we'll read a story in just a minute about that. But in 51, we see this refrain over and over again at the end of Luke's gospel. He's making a turn toward the cross, and over and over, it says, on the way to Jerusalem. He's trying to remind the readers, hey, we know where this is headed, right? We know where Jesus is going. This is the cross. This is suffering. Let's keep reading. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And he and his disciples went to another village. Again, uh, this is a strange story when you read it because you're like, they're heading towards Jerusalem, Jesus has told them. And they go through Samaria, and Samaria rejects Jesus. And then what is the first thing out of James and John's mouth? They reject you? Let's, let's, let's bring the fire down on them. Let's burn them up, right? That sounds strange at first, but actually, this week I was fascinated to find a connection between a story and the Old Testament. I've never seen this connection before. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1. It's a story about Elijah. And just before in chapter 9, there's been a story about the transfiguration and the James and John were up there with Jesus and saw Elijah and Moses. You remember this? Right after that story, they're heading through Samaria. And exactly what happens in 2 Kings 1 is what they call for Jesus to do in this story. Because Elijah had come across this king in Samaria that wasn't following what God wanted. And and Elijah calls down fire from heaven and burns up a hundred of the king's men. So James and John think they're, they're, this is what winners do. You know what, you know, Elijah did. Surely you're going to do the same thing. Jesus says, (laughs) we're on a different path. I'm not going to get taken up in a, you know, a blaze of glory up to heaven. No, this is going to end far different than the story of Elijah. So we see James and John calling down for fire and vengeance, and Jesus seems to think they, they don't get it. They don't get where this is headed. And this is the inherent tension in the Bible between this desire we have to win and this desire we have to follow Jesus, because the following Jesus is going to lead us into losing far more often than we're comfortable with if our journey is towards winning. And based on how the cross has become this fashion status symbol for many of us, it seems that our culture just can't bear to accept the cross and Jesus' call to follow him and bear that cross as well. It's a path that Jesus calls all of us as followers of Jesus to go down. Let me read one more time from Luke 9, 23. This is his word not just to those people, but to us as well. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, discipleship is a journey toward death. And it may not look like a physical death. For many of us, it won't look that way, that the outcome of discipleship will turn out that way. But it is going to mean a death to sin. That's what Romans 6 talks about. When we become slaves of righteousness, we're no longer slaves to sin. It's going to mean a death of Some of the dreams we had of winning that are going to turn out a little different. It's going to mean a a death of our kingdom wish about our kingdoms so that we can pick up Jesus and his kingdom that follows a a harder course so often. You ever noticed uh, how there are parts of Scripture we don't really open to in church on a Sunday morning? Like The preachers just don't seem to pick those to preach sermons on. One of those is Psalm 88. I don't know if any of you have heard a sermon on Psalm 88. If so, kudos to your preacher. It's just, it's a lament psalm. And most of the lament psalms end up by saying, but we'll trust, put our hope in the Lord at the end, right, is this refrain. But Psalm 88 never makes the turn in a positive direction. It's all just, where are you, God? 
And, and the problem is if we don't read these scriptures at church or never mention them or preach on them, what do we do when we're in the midst of suffering and need words for that kind of journey? Because the truth is many of you could have used Psalm 88. You just may never have been pointed to it. Or maybe that was the very chapter. Maybe it was other lament scriptures that you needed. You needed words to cry out to God in the midst of the difficulty of your lives. But in a culture of winning and an American culture of winning churches, we don't seem to go to those places as often. The lament psalms aren't read. They aren't preached on. They're not all that much of a topic. I don't know if I could handle six weeks in the lament psalms. What about you? And if I'm honest with you, this series itself on death, there was part of me that said, I don't know, are they going to stick with me for six weeks? Because a conversation about death is what no one wants to walk into on Sunday morning. Because we're so used to having church be a little bit like a, a drug hit, if I'm honest. You ever heard this analogy before? I, I was reading a guy recently who was talking about church as kind of a drug culture. Like we go out into the world and we experience all kinds of suffering and pain and difficulty in our lives. And every Sunday we walk into church and we get kind of a drug hit so that we can walk out the rest of the week so that we can come back the next week and get another hit to go on, which would make me into a drug dealer, which probably breaks down the metaphor a little bit. But church can become this. If every week we have to turn the corner at some point in the service so we can send people out with an encouraging word, what does that do for those of you who don't need an encouraging word? What you need is someone to sit with you in the midst of your suffering and your pain and your difficulty. And the American church is almost completely devoid of this because everything we do is built on this winning culture and making sure we give people that hit so they'll come back the next week. How many of us need to walk out with a lament psalm from time to time? How many of you walked in and, and the week's been so difficult or you're walking in with guilt because of something you failed again in your life. And you walk in and every, all we sing are these happy, clappy songs. And, and the sermon just seems, he just, he's got a smile on his face the whole way. And he sends us out with the joy of the Lord. And you're thinking, that didn't touch where I'm at right now. You can walk through a whole sermon. Have you ever been there with someone who's lost someone? Or maybe you've been in that place and you're sitting on the row. And all of a sudden, your, your attention is completely different in the service. Because you're listening through someone else's lens or a new lens yourself, and nothing seems to connect because it all seems so happy and as if everyone has to come in here and we're a winning church and let me tell you about the blessed life God wants to give you. Sorry, our lives are more difficult than that. We need hope, but sometimes hope is being able to sit with words that explain the situation we're really in. I'm tired of acting as a drug dealer sometimes. Acting as if that's the role that we come in to do. Jesus knew his lament psalms. And when it came to his most difficult moment in his life, that's exactly what he utters from his lips because he'd spent time with them. This is Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is on the cross. You remember the words he says? He says several of them on the cross. But I want to read these to you because Jesus knew these words and he needed them at this moment. Some of you, you may need them this week. You may need them. You may have needed them last year. But all of us are going to need them at some point. This is Matthew 27. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. He's not calling Elijah, is he? He's calling out for God. He feels forsaken in this moment. This isn't a play that Jesus does. He's bearing the weight of all of our sin over all the generations. And in this moment, there's a forsakenness that he feels. He doesn't feel the connection that he felt with God. How, how can God come near him in the midst of the sin that he's bearing on this cross? 
And his cry comes not from happy places in Scripture. It comes from Psalm 22, the words of David. David, who knew why the element sometimes. Who lost his son as a result of his sin. And I'm wondering in Psalm 22, maybe you don't need to know it in Aramaic, but maybe you just need it in English this week as a reminder to say there are times you're going to need to cry out to God and say, I feel like you've forsaken me. And that's not to express doubt. It's to express our confidence. To offer. I mean, if, if you had doubt, you wouldn't turn to God because you would give up hope altogether that he's there. A, a prayer said with a lack of confidence or a doubt about God or feeling forsaken is actually an act of hope in the midst of despair. Because it's to offer something to someone that you should be giving up on in the moment, but it's the only place you know to turn. And the lament psalms do this over and over and over again. So maybe Psalm 22 is the place that you need to have hope in this week. And most of us want to go to a winning church. It feels good when church is happy and our songs are encouraging and the sermon sends you out in a good way. And it feels good when the parking lot's full. We want to go to a winning church as much as we want our kids to go to a winning school. But if, you, if you've ever experienced a tragedy and brought that in with you and received what that kind of church gives you, it just leaves you just as empty as you were when you came in. The story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is about a God who doesn't stand far off in those moments. He's a God who's gone to the cross on our behalf and experienced the same kind of forsakenness that we feel in those moments. And sometimes you walk into these churches that are so successful, and sometimes I, my sermons have sounded like this, so don't hear me casting stones at other churches, but sometimes you walk out and you get a sense that if you, if you really are loved by God, that everything's going to go well in your life. You're going to have all the health you need, that that diagnosis is never going to come, that the healing is going to come when you pray for it. And sometimes it sounds like if healing didn't come, you didn't have enough faith. I'm here to tell you that's bogus. It's not the story that God gives us in Scripture. Healing doesn't always come on this side of the grave. Reconciliation doesn't always come the ways we'd like it to come. And the cross is proof that God does not choose to save the righteous every single time. In fact, the most righteous person who's ever come on earth didn't have his prayers answered in the Garden of Eden and still had to go to the cross. So any church that would tell you that if you, you didn't get the healing or, or if things aren't quite right in your life or if you're still having to pay the mortgage payment and you're overdue, that somehow you're not in the right relationship with God, let me tell you, it's wrong. God's there beside you every step of the way. And for those disciples who were hoping to join a movement with the winning team, this comes as a disappointment. But for those of us who want to be more like Jesus, this comes as a great hope in the midst of our pain. And our suffering, doesn't it? So I want to close today uh, with uh, some words from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first words in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus gives in a message in a sermon. And maybe Psalm 22 is your verse today, but maybe Psalm uh, Matthew 5 is the place you need to take with you. Because some of you right now, you, you have more tears than you can share about in a service like this. Some of you are feeling alone. Some of you are feeling broken. Some of you are feeling like there's no hope for the relationships in your lives. When Jesus says that those are people are blessed, it's not the people that often churches will tell you are blessed. It's not those who have it all together and seem to not have any trouble in life. No, he calls a different group blessed. I want to close with these words from Jesus. This is who he calls blessed, and this isn't just for those he spoke to that in that moment. It's for those of us as well. If you're in a time of trouble or a time of suffering or you need Psalm 22, I think this is good news as we close today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is who Jesus calls blessed. This is what his kingdom wants to call blessed. And we'd rather not be called blessed if it's these descriptions sometimes, right? (laughs) But this is the blessing God wants to pour out on you is if you're in those situations, Scripture has a treasure full of Scriptures for you because nobody in Scripture seems to have it all together, do they? God uses the broken people of this world, the left aside, the cast aside, the persecuted, those who have tears on their bed every night. Those are the ones that God calls blessed. It's backwards. It's not winning like our culture points to, but this cross, this symbol, has changed my life. I pray it'll continue to change yours as well. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for good news this morning. God, I pray this morning in the midst of the mourning and the tears, in the midst of feeling persecuted and as if insults come because of what we take on in righteousness and who we trust as Lord. God, all the insults, all of that. We trust this morning that we are blessed even in the midst of it. God, this week, I pray that the Psalms will get a little more reading in our lives, maybe. That you'd remind us that there were people who had enemies even that many years ago, and still we sense this face, this reality that, that not all is right in your world. So God, would you send us out today with this blessing? Would you send us out today knowing uh, that it's not about winning on this side of the grave, it's about the win you've already created on the other side that we have hope in. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.